as we get close to Christmas, there's a verse where you know where we're probably turning to, Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 6. Before we start, let's open with prayer. Heavenly Father, we set aside this time for you and we ask that you would guide us through your word, that you would teach us, encourage us, and edify us into things that is contained here. We pray that you would open our minds to the, to the gospel, to the scripture, and we pray that we would leave here changed, that we would be closer to you. In Jesus' name, amen. If I had to put a bet on it, I would probably put a couple dollars on the following, that probably in all of the homes that are represented here, in all, your, all of our houses, that there's probably a Christmas card that will arrive at your place, if it hasn't already, with this verse of scripture on it that always comes out around Christmas, as it should. Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 6. It says, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting, Father, the Prince of Peace. Now when everyone hears that, and if we just read that verse, and if ten seconds later I were to ask you the impressions, the images, the thoughts that that verse brings to your mind, almost everyone's would all be in the same category of, it's announcing the birth of what we know today as Jesus. It's announcing the birth of the Savior. Specifically, it's announcing the birth of a child. But you know, there's a lot more in just that verse. That verse was talking about words like government, counselor, mighty God, prince of peace. All of those things are associated with an adult version of humanity. And yet, we're here to celebrate Christmas in in our uh, Christian culture. So we celebrate the birth, the first time Jesus in flesh and blood came into our existence. And this is clearly talking about it. For unto us a child is born, a son is given. But there's also a lot of language there talking about some grown-up things. Adult, um, societal, cultural, nation-building type language. Let's set that aside for a second. Before we even get to that, look at that first sentence. For unto us a child is born, comma, unto us a son is given. Now the Bible speaks like this. All the time. Keep your finger right there. Turn with me to Proverbs chapter 6. Proverbs chapter 6. The topic is not what we're looking at, but the language. Just to show you how the Bible uses language in such a way that it can, you can fall asleep intellectually if you're not careful. Proverbs chapter 6, and look at verse 2. Thou art snared with the words of thy mouth. Thou art taken with the words of thy mouth. That verse is using the same phrase twice. The words of thy mouth. And it associates it with you being snared and being taken. Both with the same idea. The words of thy mouth. Look at the next verse. Do this now, my son, and deliver thyself when thou art come into the hand of thy friend Go, humble thyself, and make sure thy friend. Notice how twice it alludes to you have a friend, and it's describing two different or two similar ways of approaching your friend. 
Verse 4, Give not sleep to thine eyes, nor slumber to thine eyelids. See how the language, it's a Hebrew way, almost of poetry. Give not sleep to your eyes, nor slumber to your eyelids. It sounds like that it's always just saying the same thing, it's just repeating it. It's just a way of kind of sounding nice. And because of that, when you get to a place like Isaiah chapter 9, and it says, Unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. You can think that it's just repeating the same exact thing. The more you understand your Bible, and the more, shall we say, adjusted you get to an expectation that there should be more in the Scripture, you maybe start to think, maybe there's more information here. For unto us a child is born. What's that referring to? The birth of Jesus. A child being born. Now, we'll see how, what the decisions we make here in a little bit, but the rest of this verse indicates or it repeats some of the other times where Jesus is seen in your Bible. Even in the Old Testament. But this, we know, is specifically talking about Luke chapter 1 and 2, Matthew chapter 1 and 2, where there's that story of wise men coming from afar and they're looking for the king being born, Herod killing all the young ones trying to get rid of him, Mary and Joseph, because of a census, they had to go to Bethlehem and they end up having this child in Bethlehem. For unto us a child is born. Why did he have to even be born? You see, Jesus, I think we can prove in the Scripture, appeared many times in the Old Testament to people. We can kind of prove this real quick. In John chapter 8, Jesus is talking back and forth with the Pharisees, and they get into a heated argument about where their lineage is from. And the Pharisees are accusing him, basically, of having no father, of being a bastard child. And it gets real heated. Jesus calls them children of the devil. And you get to the end of that chapter... And they said, you know, we, we know where we came from. We're Abraham's seed. And Jesus' response was, before Abraham ever was, I am. Now the next verse says that the Pharisees picked up stones and they were going to rock him. Now, what's important to know, Jesus called them children of the devil. They didn't pick up stones. He accused them of a lot of things, of leading people to hell right along with them. They never once tried to stone him for that. But when he said, before Abraham ever existed, I am, they immediately, they bend over and they start, and they're going to rock him. They are going to stone him to death. Why? Blaspheme. Why are you saying blaspheme? That phrase, I am, comes from where in the Bible? Think back to Moses out there in the wilderness and there's that burning bush and there's a voice that comes out of that bush that says, take your sandals off your feet where you stand is holy ground. And and Moses realizes, I'm I'm talking to God here. And Moses says, you're sending me back to Egypt to go get those people out of there, out of slavery. Who do I tell them sent me? And the voice comes out of that bush saying what? You tell them that I am hath sent you. That's why those Jewish Pharisees, when they hear Jesus say, before Abraham ever was, I am, what did they hear in their ears? Jesus is equating himself with, he's actually saying, 
I was that voice in the burning bush that talked to Moses who gave you all these commandments. That I'm, I'm way ahead of Moses. I am God. Now, if Jesus appeared back there in that bush and he talked to Moses, why couldn't he appear to Mary and Joseph, those shepherds out in the field, Julius Caesar of the day, Herod? Why could he not appear, come back in that same form? Why at this time did he come as a tiny, helpless baby in a manger? The Bible tells us that when Adam and Eve sinned, that God came to them in the garden and he made a promise. There were the three people that were there, Adam, Eve, and Satan. And God told Satan, someday there's somebody coming from the woman. He's going to crush your head. You're going to bruise his heel, but he is going to strike you on the head. And there's something, there's a detail in there that we all miss. God promised that something would come from the woman. See, Jesus didn't come in angel form. He didn't even come in God form. When he was here with the disciples, walking on water, eating bread, what form was he in? We can all raise our hand. He was in our form. He specifically came to be one of us for what purpose? Why couldn't an angel die? Why couldn't God in his glory form on the throne die? Galatians chapter 4 and verse 4 gives us, go faster, Galatians chapter 4 and verse 4 gives us some information. Galatians chapter 4 and verse 4 says, But when the fullness of time was come, that means there was an exact specific time that God had for the following. When the fullness of time was come, God sent forth His Son. So this is talking about our Christmas event. He's here in the flesh. How did He send Him? Made of a woman, comma, made under the law. See, Jesus came in our form because who needed saving? We did. It was because of Adam and Eve, a man and woman. It was their sin that brought it into the world. And legally speaking, who had to pay the penalty for that? Mankind. This is why to pay our penalty legally in God's court of law, a man, a homo sapien, had to be the one to pay the penalty. This is why Jesus, in God's eternal plan, came to this earth. Remember, he he had been here before. The Bible tells us Jacob wrestled with a capital A, angel. And because of that, God renamed him. Not Jacob anymore, he would be Israel. It says, because you have favor with God. So you can read that as, Jacob wrestled with the Lord. There's all kinds of examples of where Jesus had appeared, but why does he have to come as this baby? And why is this the celebration in all of human history? We mark time, even today, 2,000 years later, according to this event. Jesus coming into the world. Because God, His willingness to pay for our sin, He still did it in the legal way. Jesus, a man, had to do it. Let's go back to Isaiah chapter 9. 
This is the importance of, for unto us a child is born. He didn't come as a 40-year-old. He came the same way that all of us did. To do what none of us could do. Because even if we had done our best to live right, we were still born with Adam's sin nature. That thing was passed into the bloodstream. This is another reason why Jesus came the way He did. Born of a virgin? What was not a part of His makeup? His father Joseph, His earthly, legal father, had nothing to do with His creation. It was only the Virgin Mary. Now, here in Isaiah, we're close to Isaiah 7, 14. Flip back a page to Isaiah chapter 7, and God makes this promise. Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. Therefore the Lord Himself shall give you a sign. So the sign always carries information. The following sign, what you're about to read, is to know that God has done something special. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. Now see, there's a lot of information there. First of all, can you imagine being that first person on earth to hear that someone was coming and was going to be born of a virgin? First thing that would cross your mind is, well, that, that's never happened. How, 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 how could it happen? And those answers weren't necessarily given to Isaiah, but the promise was given that a virgin, for the first time, would bring forth a person into the world. Now, this promise is contained in where we've already mentioned, Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. When God tells Eve that the... Well, excuse me, tells Satan that the seed of the woman is coming to crush you. See, time out. I, I, I took biology as a sophomore in high school. And I learned, further learned, being trying to gain Jennifer's favor working for her dad on a hog farm, that reproduction takes a male and a female. And out of those two, the male has the seed. The woman incubates. When God told Satan the seed of the woman is... That doesn't even make biological sense. But what is contained in there? The hint of, the picture of, the promise of the virgin birth. That's the only time the seed of the woman even makes sense. Is if she's all alone, except with her and God. That's what that angel told Mary. That the thing that's growing inside of you is of the Lord. The seed of the woman. You see, one thing I always want to point out is how consistent the Bible is from the beginning. When God talks and says the seed of the woman, He didn't misspeak. He was trying to to communicate information that if you pick it apart and tear it apart, it, the whole story's in there. The seed of the woman. A physical man was not involved in that. And Isaiah chapter 7 tells us, gives us a little more information that, well, a virgin is going to give birth someday. And what's at the end of Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14? What would they call him? Emmanuel, which means what? That's what the angel tells Mary. When, his, when this boy is born, you make sure his name is going to be Jesus. He will be called Emmanuel. And what that means in that original language is God with us. See that word, the, the end of that word, E-L, Emmanuel. Think with me through the Bible. L always refers to, it means God. 
Remember there's those words, those names of God, El Shaddai. Jacob named the place Bethel. They would dig wells and they would name the well something that described the circumstance in their life and they would put the L on the end of it. Emmanuel literally means God with us. So, this verse, a thousand years before Jesus, describing a virgin birth, and his name would be Emmanuel. It's the promise that not only would this virgin give birth to a baby, but what would be the nature of that baby? He would be God. He's not just going to be normal, everyday, Joe Schmo down the street. God is coming in human flesh. That's what is contained in the name Emmanuel. It's God here with us. Go back to Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. For unto us a child is born, comma, unto us a son is given. What goes through your mind when you hear that phrase? Is that just repeating that a child was born and now it's just introducing gender? That a child is born and furthermore, it's going to be a boy. Is that what that's saying? When it says a son is given, that verb of given should make you think maybe of John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he... He gave. And what does that mean, gave? Did he give his son to be a shepherd in a Christmas pageant? What does it mean that he gave his son? He gave his life. He offered the death, the blood of his son. When this verse here says that unto us a son is given, it's not just saying that in the maternity ward they're going to put up another dash for a boy being born. It's not just talking about gender. The Son is given. The Son is going to be sacrificed for us. All of this is in these phrases. A child, he had to be born as one of us. He also is a son. Whose son is he? He's not Joseph's. I mean, legally, when they go to the courthouse and he gets his driver's license or a bank account and he has to sign for him, Who signs for Jesus? Joseph, legally speaking. But who was his biological father? It was God. And when this verse says that a son is given, there it is, where God is giving his son to humanity. And for what purpose? To die for us, to pay the penalty. But look how the Bible in Isaiah verse 6 says, Continues, once it describes that son being given, dying for us, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. Got a question. When was Jesus ever associated with government? Kind of a trick question. When was Jesus associated with government? I mean, he, he kicked those Romans out, right? That's what the disciples told him. Let's go, but brother, let's go to Rome. Let's kick those Caesars out and let's rule this earth. Did that happen? It's a good answer. It, it hasn't happened yet. See, when Jesus was going to be 
sent back to heaven in Acts chapter 1 and 2, the disciples asked him, will you at this time restore unto us, or will you restore the kingdom to Israel? What's that mean? Is Israel going to be top dog again? Are you going to set up your reign here on this earth? Why would the disciples even ask a question like that? Why were they thinking in terms of, he's going to have a scepter and he's going to have servants and he's going to tell people this and that and the law is going to come out of his mouth and he's going to enforce it. Why were they thinking those thoughts? Because the Old Testament prophecies all tell that when the Messiah comes, he's going to do that. He's going to rule and reign. But the program got interrupted by something. Yes, it's his death, but how about the people that he came to rule? Rejected him. And because of that, the gospel went where? To places like us. It went to Asia, Europe, Africa, Australia, the Americas, Europe. Because they rejected their own, the gospel then went throughout the whole earth. And see, here's where you learn something about God's plan. What happened very, very soon after Israel rejected their Messiah and Jesus was killed? Historically speaking, on the calendar, in history, what happened with the nation of Israel? The Romans destroyed that place. Everything. And from that time for 2,000 years, the Jews were scattered throughout the earth. And see, you learn something about God here. He really only deals with the earth in two ways. Through all the Old Testament, he dealt with the earth through Israel most of the time, once he had them established. He had Jewish prophets that talked to, to the world, that told people what he wanted. When Israel was destroyed, what was already had just been established? Acts chapter 2, it was the church. And the church is made up of anybody. You can be Jewish. There's Gentiles. Paul tells us that once you're in Christ, once you're born again, there's neither Jew nor Greek, male or female. There are no distinctions. When you come out of wherever you are to join the church, you're only known as the church, the body. And once Israel was destroyed, the church has been God's governing body throughout the earth for 2,000 years. But, is that going to continue forever? See, there's these promises that Jesus is going to come back to set up his kingdom. And this is why the Bible teaches that someday, what's going to happen to this group of people known as the church? He's going to suck them all out of here. And once they disappear, once they leave the earth, then how does God deal with the earth again? Through Israel. This is why it's so important that if you get out a map today, What's over there between Jordan and the Mediterranean? That nation of Israel, they're back. The stage is set for at any moment for the church to be out and God then deal with the earth through Israel. You see, Jesus is going to have two comings. He came the first time, he came the second. There's also two different times where he's going to take something. He's taking the church out and then he's going to come for Israel. These Israeli people, this nation, has this promise in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. That once that child is born, 
Once the son has been given and he's paid the penalty for sin, after that, the government shall be upon his shoulder and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor. Now, most everybody reads wonderful right there as an adjective. They think it's describing a certain kind of counselor. See, we have lawyers in our world today. People may talk about a good lawyer and a bad lawyer. They, they read that into this, that he's a wonderful counselor. That's the kind of counselor that he is. That's not true. I mean, he is a wonderful counselor. But this is talking about that word wonderful as a noun. You can go back to Judges chapter 13. Let's go there. Keep a finger right here. Go to Judges chapter 13. This is the birth of Samson. After Deuteronomy, Joshua, then Judges. Chapter 13. Judges chapter 13 is very interesting. Samson's parents are visited by an angel of the Lord. This angel first appears to the woman, to the wife, and tells her, you're going to have a son. And she, he gives her some things not to do with that son. Don't, don't cut his hair. Don't let him have strong drink. He's going to be a Nazarite, and God will use him. Well, she runs home to her husband and says, you can't imagine what... I just, what I just happened to me out in the field. An angel came and talked, and the husband praised the Lord, send that guy back, whoever he was, send him back so I can meet him. In verse 9, And God hearkened to the voice of Manoah, the man, and the angel of God came again unto the woman as she sat in the field. But, but Manoah, her husband, was not with her. And the woman made haste and ran and showed her husband and said unto him, Behold, the man hath appeared unto me that came unto me the other day. And Manoah arose and went after his wife and came to the man and said unto him, Art thou the man that spake us unto the woman? And he said, now, I don't, I'm, I'll be very honest with you, I don't read that as him just saying, yes, I'm the guy. When he says, I am, God has recorded his Bible specifically enough that the same two words, I am, that caused the Jews to want to stone him, in my opinion, are the same two words that are identifying this angel as Jesus. Now, we've got more information. We don't want to hang it just on that. Look down at verse 16. And the angel of the Lord said unto Manoah, Though thou detain me, I will not eat of thy bread. And if thou wilt offer a burnt offering, thou must offer it unto the Lord. For Manoah knew not that he was an angel of the Lord. And Manoah said unto the angel of the Lord, What is thy name, that when thy sayings come to pass, we may do thee honor? Now remember when angels are attempted to be worshipped, what, what do those angels always do? They say, don't, don't, don't do it to me. You make sure you worship God. And in verse 18, this angel said, the angel of the Lord said unto him, Why askest thou thus after my name, seeing it is... Now, my Bible says secret, but it's in italicized. And right next to it, it has wonderful. What's the name of this angel? That's one of his names. What do we just read in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6? He shall be called wonderful, comma, counselor, comma. This angel is associated with the I am statement. 
His name is wonderful. And let's keep reading verse 19. So Manoah took a kid with a meat offering and offered it upon a rock unto the Lord. And the angel did what? Now, now the Holy Spirit just puts it in an adverb form. He did wondrously. And Manoah and his wife looked on. For it came to pass when the flame went up toward heaven from off the altar that the angel of the Lord ascended in the flame of the altar. And Manoah and his wife looked on it and fell on their faces to the ground. Why were they scared? Because the next verse, but the angel of the Lord did no more appear and Manoah to his wife. And Manoah knew that he was an angel of the Lord. And Manoah said unto his wife, We shall surely die because we have seen who? Even they, after it's over, realize, come to the conclusion, I, I, I think we just encountered God. And I think they're right. This was a time, one of many, where Jesus comes to appear to people. And of course, at this time, he is not known as Jesus. Because Jesus, or Emmanuel, is for what event? For his birth. When he gets his kidneys, and his heart, and his lungs, and his blood vessels, and his brain. When he becomes a man, when he gets his flesh and blood body, that's when his name is signified by Jesus. And Emmanuel, it's God with us among mankind. See, those names are very important. That's why God changed people's names when their life's direction changed. Remember, God changed Abraham's name, Abram, to Abraham. His name changed Sarai to Sarah. He changed Jacob's name to Israel. When God changes the name, it's because their function changes. And Jesus, at this time in the Old Testament, was not known as Emmanuel. It was prophesied in Isaiah a thousand years before Jesus got here. When he gets here, we're going to call him Emmanuel because it's going to be God with us. Go back to Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 6. Let's start at, that, at the beginning of the verse again. For unto us a child is born. He becomes man. Unto us a son is given. The given part means he's giving his life. But also... Whose boy is he? He's God's son. Now, we didn't take some time on that one. We kind of skipped over it. Why is it such a big deal? Let me ask you, is it even a big deal that he's God's son? Think with me back to when Jesus was on trial for his life. What were they questioning him about? Mark chapter 14. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Mark chapter 14. Mark chapter 14 and verse 60. Verse 60. Mark chapter 14 and verse 60. This is at his trial. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, saying, Answerest thou nothing? What is it which these witness against thee? These people are coming in, they're paid witnesses, they're trying to lie against him. But he held his peace and answered nothing. Again the high priest asked him and said unto him, Art thou the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? What's the high priest asking? Are, are, are you God's Son? Now there's something to learn in, that, in what that high priest just asked. He asked two different things. Are you the Christ? And are you God's Son? 
See, they are expecting one of those two. Which ones were the Jews expecting? The Messiah. They're expecting a great leader. But they don't think that that great leader, when he gets here, will be God's son. They think he's just going to be like a David, a Moses, maybe a little bit of Samson in him. He might be just a a composite of all those great men. But he's not going to be divine. He's not going to be God's son. They were expecting a Messiah. But the idea that he would be God's son, that's what got to them. That's why John chapter 8, when Jesus says, I am, and identifies as the God voice talking out of that burning bush, that's what they couldn't abide. They had to kill him when he said that, they thought. Verse 62, And Jesus said, You see, if you're sensitive from beginning to end, your Bible will always reveal itself. The roadmap. Jesus again says, I am. It's not the first time he's ever said that, is it? It's not even the second time he's ever said that. It's not even the third time he's ever said that. I am. And you shall see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. Now he identifies himself there as the Son of Man because a man had to be the one to pay the penalty. But this is the part of the celebration of Christmas. It's that dual nature. He is both. He is one of us, and at the same time, he's he's God's son. That's why Christmas is so special. What happened in Bethlehem, in that manger, when the God, the creator of the universe, he's the one that created the hill that the manger was resting on. He created the tree that the cross was made out of. He came to be one of us, and yet he was God's son. And this is what Jesus is put on trial for. Are you God's son? This is why the Jews, in verse 63, Then the high priest rent his clothes and said, What need we of any further witnesses? You have heard the blasphemy. What think ye? And they all condemned him to be guilty of death. In the end... They put him to death for claiming to be God's son. Now, there's a ton of Christians. There's a ton of people that attend church that think, well, Jesus never even claimed to be God's son. Yes, he did. All the time, in a hundred different ways. All the time. Do you remember what happened after he's hanging on that cross for six hours? Three hours of darkness in the middle of day. The place goes dark. There's a great earthquake and the rocks start to rent and come apart. And the graves are opened up and people come out of the graves and go into Jerusalem. What did the soldier, the centurion, watching the cross, what did he say after those events? Surely this was the Son of God. He had on his mind, these guys are condemning this guy. They, some people think he's God's son. He said he was. They put him to death for lying about, saying he's God's son. And when he saw all the miracles take place surrounding his death, what conclusion did he come to? He started shaking. And he realized, I, I just oversaw the death of God's son. It was all about whether or not he was God's son. 
When then you follow this through the end of your Bible when Peter and the disciples in the book of Acts are preaching to different people. What do they say about Jesus? They talk about uh, you people, you, you, the, the ones that we're here in front of, we have to answer to these authorities, you killed the Holy One, the Just One. Was David, Moses, Abraham, were they the Holy One? You only get that if you're God's son. See, those disciples kept preaching to those rulers, those magistrates, that you got blood on your hands and you killed God's son. That was their message. That the Messiah that has come, you guys missed it. He fulfilled all these promises and the big one that you, that you missed was that he was God's son. And there's news, he's, he's coming back. That's what they kept telling him. So back to Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 6. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son, God's son, is given, and the government shall be on his shoulder. Now see, that part really throws a lot of Christians. They, they, don't, they just think they, their mind switches to poetry Nice verbiage, government, but they don't associate Jesus with being a governmental figure. If we had a, a, a game of trivia or, let's say, an interview man on the street, and people were to ask the question, who's your favorite government figure of all time? How many people would say Jesus? Zero. Unless they ask some of us, maybe. Nobody associates Jesus with a government figure. At least, well, not yet. The, the, the world will. And they're kind of going to be forced to. The Bible says that every knee will bow, every tongue will confess. And some of that's not going to be voluntary. Some of that will be involuntary servitude. Because he will come back, as this verse says. It's the same thing the angel told Mary. Gabriel came to Mary and said, He is the Son of the Highest. And he will sit on the throne of his father David forever. Notice these other, the other language here. The mighty God, the everlasting father. That, that doesn't seem to make sense. How, how could this person being born be a father? Well, the actual translation is really the eternal one. But let's take it for as it's translated. The everlasting father. Who did Jesus say he was equal to? He told everybody, I and my Father are, we're one, we're the same. That's the Trinity part that's hard for us to understand. But He and the Father are one. Then, the Prince of Peace. I mean, you think about the language. Take God at His word. Who can be a Prince? Who are the only people in Roman times, uh, English times, English kings? Who did you have to be a son of to be a prince of England? You had to be the son of a king. This language identifying this person, the Messiah, as the prince of peace, he has to be God's son. Princes are always destined for what role? be in kingship, to be sitting on that throne, to be wearing the crown. 
to have the scepter in their hand, to everybody answering to them. This is the future. This is the destiny of our Lord Jesus. Now verse 7, I can tell you, I used to read this and it, I, I didn't want to read this. Being a conservative American Christian in, in this world, I don't like when the government increases. I'm a small government guy. See, my worldview is shaped by the biblical understanding that what do we know about the nature of man? Ever since the Garden of Eden, we're sinful. And because of that, you can't 100%, you cannot inherently trust mankind, even if it's George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, John Adams, even though you might be a great person, we still can't trust you with all power. Why? You have a sin nature. So because of that, we have to have small government. We can't let one person have too much power. But why, why does this thing then talk about Jesus as the increase of his government and peace there shall be no end. Should we be against that? Why are we okay with the increase of Jesus' government knowing no end? Because He's perfect. He doesn't have that sin nature that we have to watch over. We don't need a council to oversee His duties or His behavior. There's no court that's going to judge Him. He will be a dictator. Why? Well, he's, he's God's son. He's in charge. And he's not asking for permission. This is why the increase of his government, the reach of his government, is going to increase on a daily basis. Every day he's going to be in charge of more and more and more. But it includes with that that peace. The more that Jesus rules and reigns, what also increases? Peace. Upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom to order it. And it makes you think, what, what's he going to do to order it? He's going to do speed limits? When, when you can spray your lawn? Maybe not. I, I get a little upset. I, I received a phone message, what, a couple years ago that said somebody had turned me in for spraying weeds in my own yard. I looked at my wife and thought, what, what country do I live in? I have to answer to somebody of whether or not I can spray dandelions. That shocked me. The reach of government having control over you. But this verse tells us that when we finally get someone who's righteous on the throne, we, we all step back and he's got it. And he's going to rule this thing with a rod of iron. That's going to be a good time to be one of his brothers or sisters. It's going to be a real good time to be related to the king. Thank goodness the New Testament talks about us, those who have chosen him as we're family members. Can you imagine that? The greatest ruler in the history of the planet and you're a blood relation. Literal blood, his blood has cleansed you. Wow! The person that phoned me might get their own phone call. And to establish it with judgment and with justice from henceforth, even forever. Forever and ever. See, this is the destiny of the earth that we live in. That this baby 
that we celebrate the birth of at this Christmas season. There was a purpose, there was a destiny, there was a plan all the time for him when he grew to maturity to rule this earth, to reign over it. You can follow that throughout the whole Bible. When Satan tempted Jesus in the wilderness, one of the things he tempted him with was, if, if you'll fall down and worship me, all these kingdoms that I'm showing you at an instant of time, the glory, the majesty of all these empires, I'll give it to you. And Jesus turned it down. He turned it down because he wasn't going to usurp anything. He was going to win it. He was going to legally take title to that. That's the, the big plan of God. We celebrate his birth into this earth where he became one of us. But that's the beauty of this whole plan where God has this plan from the beginning where he tells even the serpent that the seed of the woman is coming into this earth. And he's going to crush your head even though you get him for a little while. You're going to bruise his heel. He's going to crush you. And we celebrate the birth of that beginning when he comes into the world. Think in those ancient empires when the king had a son. And they would herald it throughout the entire kingdom that a prince has been born. They, they know right away. That, you know, England still holds on to a remnant of that. Prince Andrew, Prince Harry, these kind of things. They give those titles at birth. They got that idea from God. Because he gave his son a title at birth, the Prince of Peace. This is why you should never be shocked when you wake up, turn on the news, and you see something other than peace. You see the world at war. Why, why are we at war? Because the Prince of Peace isn't here ruling yet. We do our best to try to stamp it down, to get human nature under control. But until he gets back here, that perfect world will never exist. The socialists that want that type of utopia, isn't it strange how they're always the ones that are anti-Christian? Because see, that's coming someday. Their utopia is coming. Their problem is they don't like the ruler. Probably better get used to it. Because when he comes, Psalm 2 has a lesson for him. It says that, kiss the son lest he be angry if his wrath is kindled just a little and you perish from the way. See, when he comes back here, it's all throughout the Bible. He's going to rule and reign forever. And isn't that amazing how that part of him being born into the earth at Christmas time, what we celebrate, that doesn't get told very much, does it? We really don't associate it with anything other than, well, it's just, it's just a baby. He was cute. He snuggled with those sheep and some of those donkeys in there and had him wrapped in the swaddling clothes that made him soft and cuddled. Yeah, all that's true. But his destiny had not much to do with a manger. His destiny has to do with he's going to end up on the throne of David forever. Father, we pray, Lord, that as your plan comes to fruition in this earth, that we would always be wary of it, that we would walk according to it and in unison with it. Help us each and every day of our lives, and especially this Christmas season, to walk in appreciation with you and your plan of your Son coming into this world to be one of us, to pay the penalty that man could not pay for himself, and that one day 
He will rule and reign here on this earth. In Jesus' name, amen.